This is episode 109 with David Rower. This is Crowdfunding Uncut, the place where creators and entrepreneurs come to learn how to launch a successful crowdfunding campaign. Here's your host, Kirsten Ross. I want to take a second to thank Gadgetflow for sponsoring this episode. Guys, if you are looking for an awesome platform to get your crowdfunding project in front of over 25 million people per month, you should absolutely check them out. They are the third largest Indiegogo partner and listed on Kickstarter as experts. And not to mention, they've worked with over 4,000 crowdfunding projects since 2012. Their platform also now supports AR and VR, which I thought was a really cool add-on. To find out more, you should definitely head over to thegadgetflow.com slash submit to list your crowdfunding project today, but be sure to use coupon code UNCUT10 to get 10% off your services with them. Hey guys, welcome back. We're going on a little bit of a tangent today. Um, If you are on my email list or have listened to um, a few of the older podcasts, you will know that I had this big goal for the last year to complete an Ironman triathlon, and a Today we're sitting at about a month after I've completed that, um, where I went down to Florida, Panama City Beach. It was great, just you know, escaping the lovely cold Toronto weather for a bit, and uh, completed it. Uh, my time was 15 hours 14 minutes, and um, f- just preface this: if you're like, wait, what is an Ironman? This is kind of the first time I'm hearing about this. Um, an Ironman triathlon is not. Avengers movie, although uh, the guy we're interviewing today, David, he does look very, very similar to the actual Iron Man. But um, the Iron Man triathlon is a massive bucket list item. It's a um, kind of the king of triathlons where you start with a swim, you bike, and then you run. And yes, you do everything back to back. Um, the distance of the Ironman specifically is a 2.4 mile swim, followed by a 112 mile bike ride. And then you cap that off with a marathon, which is 26.2 miles of a run. So if you wonder what 15 hours look like, it's literally you're in the water at 7 a.m. latest and you have until midnight that night to complete everything. So um, I felt that David and I have just been working together for the last 12 months and um, we keep having so many conversations around the segues between pushing yourself mentally and how the um, Ironman triathlon as an endurance sport is very similar to what you guys are trying to do in the entrepreneur space. And that's do something that you think is crazy that maybe your friends don't believe you can do, um, but you have a dream and, and you have a specific outcome you're looking for and kind of how to work through that. And the Ironman's kind of the staple of that for me because it was um, definitely the hardest endurance thing I thought I could ever do in my life. And I still, up until the morning, I I still didn't believe I could do it. Um, So David, I'm really stoked um, to have you on the show and just actually record one of our many awesome conversations to talk about just the mental game and and what goes into uh, something like this when you, you set higher stakes in life. So thanks for coming on good to be here. Yeah. So, I mean, for, um, I always like to start off by, you know, just giving us a bit of background on you. Like, uh, what's your history with the sport? How'd you get into it? What does your personal life look like? You know, what do you, what do you do outside of Ironman's, um, that sort of thing. I was born in White Plains, New York, 
and met my wife when I was 32. We got married, we lived on the Upper West Side, and we moved to suburban New Jersey. And I'm a school teacher, and she's a legal assistant. And we had a fairly average life. Had a child. And then my father, when I was 38 or 39 years old, my father had a heart attack. And as part of his rehab, I made sure he started exercising regularly. And I said, I need to do something. And around that time, someone reached out to me and said, hey, I'm doing the New York City Triathlon, which is a short course race. Um, it's a fundraiser. And I go, I'll give you some money. And I go, you know what? I always wanted to do this. I think I'm going to do this. So I signed up and I did that race the following year. So to give you a sense of context, the New York City Triathlon is what's called Olympic distance. And for most individuals, it's an achievable goal within a year. You swim 1,500 meters, just under a mile. You bike 25 miles, and then you run 6.2 miles. And so I did that, and I fell in love with the sport. I was god-awful. I was slow as a turtle through peanut butter. But it was a personal goal, and I made it through, and I felt, oh, my God, I'm good at something for the first time in my life outside of doing my job. I'm actually good at something. And so I fell into this sport and it progressed from there. And I had a coach who was great, but I felt I've been a special ed teacher for many, many years and I was successful at it and still successful at it. But I felt I can do this. So in 2011, I went to Charlotte, North Carolina for a USAT three-day seminar on coaching. And USAT is a governing body of triathlon in America. And so I became a certified coach. And from there, I started realizing what I realized about myself and this almost anything is possible. I can now impart that to others. So what was your, what does your journey look like? Cause you, I mean, did you, I know this answer, but did you go from the New York city triathlon to completing an Ironman or like what, what did that journey look like um, for you to build up the endurance and stuff? So many people are, when they do a triathlon, it's a bucket list. It's one and done. I did it. I'm glad I did it. Okay, back to life. For me, this became a lifestyle and a way of life in the sense that it was, it transformed the way I looked at food. It transformed the way I looked at goal setting. It transformed the way I looked at how I approached just about everything to life. And it didn't just become a metaphor for life. It became life. But at times, I became careful not to let it eclipse my personal life. It was a source of integration, you know, the board you will become. I did that race, and then I did the Westchester Triathlon in the September, same distance. And somebody I'd done New York City with sent out an email to the team. Hey, I live in Bermuda. Would anybody want to come down and do the Bermuda Triathlon? And I go, I go yeah, um, I'm there. So I did a sprint triathlon at the beginning and three Olympic distance triathlons in my first year. I was got awful at all four of them, but I was empowered. I'm like, this can only get better. And then the second year I repeated those. Equally had a great experience with it. Some were faster, some were slower. Had fun. Really didn't know quite what I was doing as for, for training and my nutrition and any of that. But I was empowered and I'd seen the NBC wild world of sports Ironman from Kona triathlon broadcast. And I go, wow, what if? And so I signed up for something called a half Ironman, which is marked by its distance. It's called a 70.3. 
An Ironman, which I'll get into in a few minutes, is 140.6 miles. So I set a goal of doing this thing that was a half the distance of an Ironman. And I would go out on my day off once a week and ride the bike course of it to make sure I would make it. Because triathlons have time cutoffs. They don't give you forever to finish this thing. And that's what makes it challenging and exciting and terrifying at once. So when I completed this thing, it was like the biggest revelation. I had found something way beyond my range. You know, you're talking a 2,000-meter swim, you're, which is about 35 laps in an Olympic pool. You're talking about biking 56 miles. So now you're dealing with quite a bit of distance. You're talking about three to four hours on a bike, and you're talking about hills. And when you get off the bike, you have to run a half marathon. You have to run 13.1, which, by the way, I ran. I walked almost all of it. But it was so empowering, empowering to think I could do this thing in under the time limit of eight hours that I started to think maybe I could do an Ironman. And I set that goal, and I dedicated a year of my time to achieving it, which meant I increased my swimming distance from 1,500 meters to 2,000 to 3,000 to 4,000 meters. And you're talking about a 90-minute swim set in the pool without break. Tap the wall, swim to the other side, tap the wall, repeat. Uh, We're talking about 112 miles on the bike. And that training encompasses, you're talking about all day out on a bicycle. Yeah, we stop for stop signs and red lights, but you're really moving for 8 to 10 hours trying to cover that ground. And at that point, you have to start thinking about what am I eating? Am I stopping to pee? Do I need to go do a number two? There's a lot of logistics involved. But I was able to pull all this together. I did the swimming. I did the biking. And I figured I'll walk the run. And so 2010, Thanksgiving weekend, I found myself in Cozumel, Mexico, doing the Ironman triathlon. I'm not going to tell you the secret yet. I'm just waiting. Like, keep going. Okay, so the flight down to Cosmo, Mexico, I'm sitting on this plane with my wife, and I'm looking at all these seasoned, professional-looking guys and gals, and I'm like, oh, my God, I'm the fattest person on the plane. And so we get to Mexico, and we get off in the island of Cosmo, and we get off the plane, and we're waiting for our bikes to be unloaded. Now, when you travel with a bike for a triathlon, they break the bike down. They take off the wheels. They take off the handlebars. They basically pack it into what looks like a casket on wheels. And we get off, and the bicycles aren't there. And so they tell us, no, this happened yesterday, and those bikes arrived today. Well, it's it's Thursday. I have Friday. And if not Friday, I have Saturday. I don't worry. My wife and I go to check in at the hotel. Then we immediately go to Cozumel's version of Costco, start buying to buy food. Because we're there for three days, and not only did we have to prep my food for the race, but we have to think about what are we going to eat for three days? We don't want to live on hotel food. And so the first thing we see as we come through the doors of this Costco is kitty bikes. And my wife goes, you sure you don't want to hedge your bet? I'm just trying to picture myself riding like a clown on a clown bicycle for 112 miles. I'm like, no. So the bicycle does arrive late at night. The next day I put it together, test it, fine. Race morning get into the water with 3,000 of my new best friends and the gun goes off and everybody's trying to get to the front of this swim. People are bumping into you. They're elbowing you. They're kicking you, getting smacked in the head, in the face. 
one point someone literally tries to swim over me and mm-hmm. I get pushed underwater. And I just relax. I make it through the swim in record time. I get on the bike. It's three loops around the island for 112 miles. First, first loop around the island, it's beautiful. Second loop, I'm getting a little bored. By the third loop, I'm just reciting books by heart and playing music in my head. But I get off the bike in record time for me I, because there are cutoffs you have to make or you're disqualified. And the fact that I simply made it was such an elation that, oh my God, I didn't even think I could make it. I had seen footage of people who got cut short at the time and they're like, sorry, got to take your bicycle. If you didn't make it, you won't get to do the run. You're not going to make this race. And so the elation of just making it that far, I wandered it for five minutes around the transition tent. Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, until I realized, dummy, you've still got to finish the race. And I get out on the course and I run. And I run for three miles. Got to do a full marathon. I run three miles. And then the wheels come off, and I walk, and I walk, and I walk. And I'm meeting people, and at one point, I'm around mile eight, I meet this guy, tells me his name is Peter Shankman. I'm like, okay. And we talk for another eight miles. And I remember his name, and he jogs off at mile 15, and I walk for another six. And with two miles left to go, the wheels completely come off. Like, my knees hurt. My joints hurt. Everything hurts. Everything hurts, and I think I'm going to die. And I don't want to do this. And so with 2.2 miles left to go, I sit down because it just hurts too much to move. And I just want to go home. And I realized if I'm going to go home, I still have to get to that finish line because that's where the plane is. And so inch by inch, I shuffle my feet for 2.2 miles and I finish. And I swear I'm never going to do this again. And I've said that four more times. But the feeling of, oh my God, you set a goal that is so beyond any human capacity for reality. And when you achieve it, you think, I can do almost anything I put my mind to. Yeah, it's really uh, fascinating that you talk about your journey where you say after the first one, you'll never do it again, because I think I had a different reaction. Like, I... um, I had a lot of people ask me before I completed it if I would turn into one of those people that would do these all the time. And I couldn't answer at the time because I didn't know if I would like it. I didn't know if I would be um, feel so emotionally or physically scarred after the Ironman that I wouldn't do it again. But I found um, after doing it, it actually wasn't as bad as I thought it would be because I, I really drummed it up to be something crazy that I never thought it could do. And so it was, I think, where I thought it would be, I came in a little bit easier with that. And uh, so and there's I, a reason you know, for that. And there's a reason for that. What is that? If you, look at, if you look at our working relationship, where you came from when you came to me, you had done a half and you had really slow times and you had a difficult time with it. And when I introduced you to organized training and it was a lot of giving back, which is the way I coach, where I would give you specific things to do, you would come back, we'd literally look at each one and evaluate how well you were doing with it and was it meeting your needs. And we constantly were tweaking each step for you. You wound up in Maine where you did the half with me having a phenomenal experience. So you went into the Ironman having a much better experience because you had a better temperament. You had better sense of pacing. You had better training. You were well prepared for it. And therefore, you were able to enjoy the experience much more. That is very true because I feel that um, my 
because, you know, I've, I've done a marathon and stuff beforehand. So like you, I, I built up to it gradually, but I feel that, um, the benefits of working with a coach side note, if you guys didn't pick it up, David's my coach, <laughs> spoiler um, alert, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean the, my first, um, 70.3 I did without a coach. And I picked one of the hardest courses in North America to start with. And I remember it's in Muskoka, Canada, um, like two hours north of Toronto. And I just remember looking at the altitude graph because um, I think, David, our first conversation about race prep was three weeks before my first, my first half. And you asked me to look at the altitude graph to see on the bike what kind of um, hill, like, is it a flat course? Is it hill-based course or whatever? And I just remember looking at it, like, for the first time because I just didn't want to deal with it. And you're like, okay, there are several hills. I didn't know what that equated to until I actually showed up. And um, while it was, it was very, like, almost Lake Placid-type hills. And um, I just remember I I had a very difficult time because I didn't properly prepare for it. I didn't know what kind of like what distances my training should be. I didn't know what my time should be. And so I think part of working with you that, I mean, major part of working with you is just you made it possible by breaking down the impossible into a way that was not just here's what your training should be, but here are the markers where you're progressing and where your nutrition should be on point. You you really gave me um, the uh, you know, really great idea of how to focus and, and really how to truly be prepared for something like this. Mm-hmm. So, I and mean, it was quite yeah. a joy. It was quite a joy to do that because you had that drive, you had that engine, and it just allowed me to focus you and help you see things. So, what is it about? the Iron Man that you keep going back. Cause after Cozumel in 2010, you quote, never wanted to do this again, but you've gone on and done four other ones. Correct. Cozumel was such a God awful physical experience for me. Cause I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't properly prepare for it that I said, I just heard too much. I don't want to ever do this again. And so, and my wife is in the room snickering because every time I say it, she goes, yeah, bullshit. <laughs> I felt I had unfinished business, so I set a goal of going and doing Arizona, which is the prestigious North American Ironman. And my training regimen for that was, once again, I really wasn't working with the coach. I was kind of figuring out as I went along. And it was, all right, I've got to bike 112 miles, so I know what I'll do. I'll just go out and bike 112 miles repeatedly. And so six weeks before the race, I was in an accident where a car tried to get around me. It clipped my back tire. I went down, found myself on the ground. Car hadn't stopped. So I go, you know what? I'm just going to bike home and get myself checked out. Biking home, realized, son of a bitch, broke my bike. And then I realized, didn't break the bike. It's, the, it's not the handlebars that are wobbling, it's the arm. We go straight to the emergency room. They x-ray the arm. They tell me, Mr. Rohr, you've broken your arm. We're going to have to operate and put in a plate. To which I say, great, can we do this today? Because like, I have a race in six weeks. I have to get back in the water. And they're like, sir, we do that tomorrow. And my wife's giving them a look like, we had a psychiatrist down here. He thinks he's going to be racing. And everybody thought I was done. And I refused to accept it. And so I reached out to my mentor who said, all right. And he's a former Olympic triathlon coach. And I, I asked him, and he goes, 
You didn't break the arm. You didn't break the shoulder, right? No, just the arm. He goes, you'll be fine. And that's all I had to know. And I worked like hell. Every swim hurt for six weeks. I didn't reach race distance swimming again until the week of the race, which is not normal. So I'm going into an event, woefully unprepared, undertrained, and all I've got is burning desire to complete. But I had a base of training to rely on. And so at Arizona, my swim, which should have taken me an hour and a half, took me one hour and 51 minutes. My bike, which should have taken me seven and a half hours, took me eight hours. So I'm already behind on where my pacing should be. And remember, you have to finish by midnight or you're disqualified. And so I get out on the course and I'm running and walking and doing a lot of walking. Because once again, I hadn't fully trained the way I should have. I was thrown from a bike. And I'm at mile 24. And it is 1135. And the race officials come upon us and they go, guys, it's a bunch of us. You're not going to make it unless you start running. If you run now, you're going to make it. But you have to do that now. And I don't think they finished the word now. I started to run. And the reason I hadn't run was my feet blistered. I had these silver dollar-like blisters on the ball of my feet right below the toes where the meat of the foot is. So every step was pain. And that was that moment where I had to decide. Am I just going to go home and say, well, I tried, but I couldn't make it? Or am I going to turn off the voices in my head that scream fire every time I put the pad of my foot on the floor and I feel burning its sensation? And that's what I did. And so for 2.2 miles, I ran, turning off the voices in my head of excruciating pain. And I made it with less than five minutes to midnight. And I heard the announcer call out my name. David Rower, you are an Ironman. Which two athletes who do endurance sports is like winning the Olympic medal? What is, what would you say is the hardest part of doing an Ironman? The training. Without a doubt, the amount of training that is involved is daunting when you look at it on paper. And you have to look at it on paper or it becomes just a god-awful mess. You have to plot out your training. And by learning to plot out training, I've learned to plot out everything. It's made me a more functional teacher, a better parent, a better husband. Because I can then literally physically on a piece of paper block out spots. I'm not using Google Calendar, which is a wonderful way for my wife and I to coordinate appointments and events. But when I have to plan my week, for work or plan my trainings. I will wrap, map out on paper a six-week training calendar. And so that volume of training comes the hardest, not just because it's so much, but we all have lives. You know, we're parents, we're children, we're siblings, we're supervisors, we're employees, we're entrepreneurs. And in so we're trying to balance the regiment of that workout with its volume of workout with our regular lives. Because remember, if you're going to put in hours of training on the swim, the bike, and the run. And you have to go oh, do your regular job, whether it's a nine-to-five or you're an entrepreneur. You'll want some dump downtime in there somewhere, and you're going to feel, I have no down. Any down has got to be planning and training. And I get up, I go to work, I train, I sleep. I don't have a personal life. And so that becomes the hardest part of it. And the balance is the hardest part to strike with. You know, the one thing I am going to say is 
um, the different big difference in training volume between working with you. So what, two years ago, I signed up for the, my first half Ironman in Muskoka. I didn't have a coach. And after Muskoka, I set the goal of I had 12 months or so to do a full Ironman and working with you through that period. But what I had noticed is I was um, using an online training program that outlined, it was like from some blog and it outlined a workout for four months from zero to half Ironman. And looking at the workout volume, it was about six days a week, but three of those days were double workouts. So what a double workout is would be for me in the pool first thing in the morning and then running at night or a pool and bike. And so the, the goal of that, of um, this blog was three swim sessions, three bike sessions, three run sessions. And I actually, uh, like about two months before my, my race, physically burnt out. Um, and when I started working with you, um, you actually were about quality of volume, like quality, not quantity. So um, you actually made it a very manageable training regime where you the core of your workout week is you do three long workouts. And then if you want to do a fourth or a fifth, you're supplementing either strength training or you're supplementing um, an additional swim if that's your weakest or you're doing like a speed workout, right? So it's, you made it uh, possible so that I was able to actually manage this with everything else. Cause I feel that People have this stipulate. They they have this like preconceived notion um, before they even look at a training schedule for something like this that they just don't have the time and they rule it out of their lives. They rule health and fitness out of their lives completely because it is unmanageable. They think you literally have to be awake at 4 a.m. every day in the pool in bed by 8 p.m. They think you don't have a social life, and so a lot of people just they just don't even look at, at how to manage this in their life. So I'd love to take a second to have an idea of, for you, David, like what is an, what does an average training week look like for you? And yeah, just let, let's go into that. So an average training week for me is not a normal person's week. And I will stipulate that in advance because I don't have a normal schedule. The reason being is I teach, then I tutor, then I coach. So if we're working with somebody who has a nine to five, I'll give you mine and I'll give you a nine to five schedule. Okay. What a normal nine to five schedule would look for people. I'll preface this by saying many people who do Ironman triathlons have a base already of doing something else. So they're not starting from scratch. So they're not killing themselves. It's the people who go, I want to do this and I won't hire a coach and I'll use an online program. Online programs are written by by coaches and coaches are like artists. When an artist paints a historical figure, they basically paint themselves. So when a coach trains a training program, they're based on their schema, their experience, not yours. So that's one of the reasons that I highly recommend that people work with coaches. You know, hire me, hire somebody else, but don't think you're going to do this by yourself without support. And this just sidetrack, I had an athlete I worked with. She did very well. And then she said, you know what, I can do this myself. I'll ask my friends. And then the end result was she was unhappy because she didn't have an objective person stepping back and going, you're doing too much, or here are concerns that aren't being addressed in your health. And so she was tired. She was miserable. She developed a rash, all due to stress that could have been avoided by having a coach. Mm -hmm. So a normal nine to five day for people who are training 
would look like this. In seven days, you're doing five days of training. You would have, I normally structure it like this. Sunday is your long workout. So Sunday you would do, say, four hours on the bike. Monday you're going to do a swim. Maybe it's 30 minutes of swimming before work. And then Tuesday is going to be a run. So let's make Tuesday your short run. So you're going to go out and run for 30 minutes. Could be before your dinner, could be before work. So we're talking very measurable goals here in small pockets. Wednesday is rest. You have to let your body rest twice a week. Weightlifters don't do the repeated workout day after day because you get negative returns. It's the same thing with your body. You need Your muscles need rest. Your mind needs rest. You need to get away from this at points to be able to come back and go, wow, it's fun. I want to do this again. If you do it every day, it's not. So Monday, Sunday is long workout. Monday is swim. Tuesday is short run. Wednesday is rest. Thursday would be your long run. So you're going to run for an hour, an hour and 15 minutes, an hour and a half. Friday will be a second swim. And that might be a speed work set of intervals as opposed to just a long swim back and forth. Saturday's a rest day. Repeat that. So you see that in a normal week of training for individuals, you have one long workout, and then you have two medium, and then you have two small. For me, my training schedule is crazy. Sunday would be all day on the bike. We're talking about eight to 10 hours. Monday morning, get up at five. Sorry, Monday morning, get up at 4.30 in the pool at five, swim for an hour, cover 3,000 meters. Tuesday, on the bike before dawn in my pain cave, as we like to call this epic when we keep our bicycles, I'd be on my bike for an hour doing a specific set of interval workouts, watching some West Wing while monitoring my pacing. You want to be in easy, medium, hard, and extremely hard zones because pushing those areas of intensity creates an ability to withstand frustration of discomfort of your muscles and at the same time actually pushes your own muscles' ability to go longer without fatiguing. So it's not just go ride all day long. There's specific goal orientations on the bike indoors and outdoors, with the swims, with the runs, where are you doing that? So once again, Tuesday would be an hour on the bike before work. Wednesday would be a rest. Thursday, I'd get up at 2 a.m., drive across the George Washington Bridge, park my car. So at about 2.30, 3 a.m., I would start running, and I would run for three to four hours. I would cover 17, 18, or 19 miles in Manhattan before work. Friday would be uh, a 30 to 70... 30 to 75 minute swim based on where I was. Saturday, they complete rest. So I'm going on less sleep. Most people should not do this. It's not a good idea, but I would get up with two or three hours sleep twice a week in the exercise. Once again, the whole point of coaching is to have a coach tell you that's a crazy idea. Don't do that. It does not fit your body lifestyle. Yeah, but David doesn't sleep, so he does this. I could tell you that my training was not even close to that. Like I could, um, what I would look to do, because I have a puppy, so I, before I got the dog, I would be training in the morning, but because I have the dog, I want to focus on taking him to the dog park, and I won't be doing that, and then exercise before work, so I would shift my schedule to more evenings as well, Um, but... Yeah, I'd like to switch gears to, um, I guess, the last 
big topic, which is how we can bring this home to entrepreneurship and just in general, people trying to do bigger things than they think they're capable of and setting goals and stuff. So, um, yeah, let's shift gears to the mindset side of this whole thing. As a teacher, everything we do has to be applicable to the audience we're working with. So as a teacher, I tell my students usually in the first or second week, by the way, your teacher does an Ironman triathlon, and you see the faces go, uh, and the jaws hit the desks. And then I explain to them that this is a 10-month prep period for me. At the end of 10 months, I'm able to do this thing. And so since I will be working with them for the next 10 months, their goal is to be able to complete the coursework that we're doing. In New York State, we have standardized exams called readiness exams, and I prep children to take these exams and pass them. So there is that mental component in the real world because they're not doing physical, they're mentally preparing for their own race, their own goal, their own finish line. And so doing this gives me the confidence that I can do other things. Now, as an entrepreneur, because I never set out to be one, I was terrified to be an entrepreneur. One of the reasons I went to teaching is it's a safe bet. You know what the goals and objectives are. You definitely have challenges to meet, but it's not like running your own business. And so I never intended to do that. And then when I started coaching, I became an entrepreneur. I started generating revenue. I started having to deal with all the challenges of managing individual clients. And I found I really like it. I like being an entrepreneur. I like working with people in a more freer environment. I like encouraging others to achieve their goals and shepherding through that. And so there was that mental component to it. Now, your experience feeds very well into this because we had a moment on the course that speaks to the mental component. Uh, At Ironman Maine, the half Ironman course that we went to in August, which was your shakedown course. Yeah. We were going to test all your Ironman skills and see where you were and were there any last-minute things with seven or eight weeks left to go that we had to focus on for you. And something wonderful happened there. We were there with our friend Matt Lovell, and all three of us entered the water together. And then we didn't see each other. And then on the bike course at one point, you and I crossed paths. And then we didn't see each other again. And then as I was coming down to the last 1.1 miles of the course, you caught up to me. And so it was a mental game for you to believe you could actually catch up to me since I was farther ahead. And then it was a mental game to keep the pacing going as we together entered the finishing shoot for that medal and that finishes photograph and all those wonderful moments because you get to a point as an athlete where your body can do more than you believe it can. And one of the coaches I had used to say, keep going, you'll pass out before you die, which is a horrible thing to say, but it's true. Your body can tolerate more frustration than you think. But we put up these mental barriers. And so for us as entrepreneurs, we get stuck. We don't set measurable goals for ourselves that are little checkpoints along the way to celebrate those moments we're at. And so at moments where we think we're going to fail because we can't see the success and we don't trust what we can't see, we sabotage ourselves. Yeah, that's like... It's weird. Like, I don't know. Let's look at a business. Well, okay. Two goals. Iron Man is one. And 
that is easy and tangible. It's not easy, but it's tangible because you can create a six-week plan, a 10-month plan, and you can gradually see they're like check marks along the way. So you, you break down this massive goal to say, this is my distance and speed goal or my time goal, but that means six months out, I want to be training at this capacity, four months out. And you have those goal posts, which make it really tangible and not to mention the accountability of having a race. Because I I wanted to quit training so many times, but I couldn't. And before I even started training, what I do is I put my money where my mouth is. So I will buy the race ticket um, before I start training because buying the ticket makes it real for me. I don't I don't start training to see how I feel and then hope, you know, I just, I, I say, here's the intention. And then I just have to make it happen. And I feel and that a lot of us do that. A lot of us find these little benchmarks and as athletes, it's way more easier than entrepreneurs. One thing I tell athletes all the time, if they want to, and they're like, listen, I have trouble with training and I need you to keep me on track. And I'm like, that's my job, but let's put it out there. Let's make you publicly accountable. Let's put it on Facebook. Hey, it's 100 days to go, and I'm doing a half marathon, which I believe, by the way, anybody can do a half marathon. It's hard, but you can get to that level. So let's put it out there. Let's have a public um, acclamation of your goal and keep you accountable. As an entrepreneur, it's much harder. And so you have to literally be that crazy person in your office or in your home office taking four by five uh, foot chart tablet paper and writing goals and objectives on these papers to keep yourself focused. The mental game becomes the physical, tangible game outside when you do not live inside your head. And when you live inside your head, you start listening to the voices of doubt. Mm -hmm. And the goal here is to avoid that. And the way you avoid that is by making lists and making them small steps. How do we get children to read who can't read? It's exactly the same thing. And for those of us who were bad at something in school, how did we wind up catching up to being at least proficient enough to not have it an issue anymore? We had measurable goals. We set tangible short-term goals to achieve because each one empowers you to the next step. Yeah, and that's the... It's funny because until I really started hammering down the... Because as an entrepreneur, what I struggle with is I struggle with creating that measurable goal because I, I just want to be a New York Times bestselling author next month. But I don't know how to moderate myself and by setting smaller goals. And if I think that one thing that um, training for an Ironman has, has taught me is you don't just jump into an Ironman. You start with the half marathon. You then maybe do a sprint triathlon and you build up to it. And I think that Doing this Ironman has made me a better entrepreneur because I've really seen how having an end goal and breaking it down and have, celebrating it along the way and doing exactly what we do for training, but mapping that over to entrepreneurship has helped focus me way more because I see how am I able to go from zero to Ironman in 10 months. You can't do that yeah. by not setting a specific goal. So, you know, a goal for anyone listening to this could be, I have a physical product and I want to launch my business. That is a tangible goal. But if you don't have a plan or a timeline or, um, 
a checklist of what you need to do, that six months you hope to launch your business in becomes a pipe dream. And the only way that you are really going to be the one that launches something great so you can quit your full-time job or, or launch that next product or change the world is you really have to be meticulous and break it down. Right. Now, my two favorite presidents, I'm a history teacher, and I work with regular ed and special ed students. And my two favorite American presidents are Lincoln and Truman. And one of the things they share in common, while they're from different states, different eras, different parties, different philosophies, they were both failures in business. And so what takes somebody who fails in business to become president of the United States, which is by far the hardest business to run and the greatest business CEO role you could ever have? Determination, a plan, and you don't live inside your head. You have to have people outside you, coach, best friends, therapists, spouses, who will call you on your bullshit and at the same time refocus you. So when they call you on your bullshit, you don't go, oh, yeah, you're right. No, it's like, no, 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 no. It's like Yoda. There is no try. There is do or do not. And so in an era where everybody gets a trophy for showing up on a sports team, you have to feel a sense of benchmark that you showed up. Absolutely. Because you will never keep going, but you need measurable goals. And so for entrepreneurs, we need to set appropriate measurable goals for ourselves and then evaluate when we don't reach them. Why didn't we reach them? Was it beyond our control or was it something we didn't gauge properly? What would you say is your, if you had to give one piece of advice or one thing that has worked for you really well when mentally it gets dark and you want to quit, what gets you through those periods? Chocolate. <laughs> of course. Seriously, <laughs> the one thing that gets, I think almost everybody has that as a go-to. But seriously, one of the things that keeps me focused, task-oriented, is don't live inside your head. Don't listen to the narrative in your head that you haven't checked with somebody because you could have the best product and you could believe 110% in what you're bringing to market, but your strategy may be off because you're not aware of things that can make you better at bringing it to market. You could have the, be giving it 100%, 10% and you could fail. And just like in triathlon, you could be working as hard as you can, but you might not be as smart as you can. <laughs> And so I encourage everybody, regardless of what their objectives are, is to have a sounding board. You know, as a coach, I have a sounding board. As an athlete, I have a sounding board. Literally for everything, I have those sounding boards because I've learned. I live in my head, then I'm missing something. That makes sense. Well, this is great. I mean, uh, David, I'm sure you might have some you know, a listener uh, from the show that wants to reach out and find out how to work with you or um, may just have a follow-up question from this. Where is the best, um, where's the best place to send someone? The easiest way to reach me is find, Facebook is a great way, but I don't always get messages on Facebook. Possibly the best way to do it is just have them contact you and you can forward them my phone number. Or okay. my email. And my email is fairly simple. And I'll give you my email. I'm happy to have people reach out to me directly. It's just my name. It's 
David Rower at AOL, and that's spelled E A V I D R O H E R at AOL.com. I love it. And uh, guys, I'll be putting the contact information in the show notes. And if you want to reach out to me, uh, email is k at crowdfundinguncut.com. But you know that already. Uh, so David, this has been fantastic. I always love going off cuff um, and talking about something besides crowdfunding, especially when it does uh, relate to mental performance and just being a, you know, challenging yourself. Super cool. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a lot of fun speaking with you and being able to reach out to new audiences and share what has worked for me. I love it. All right, guys, that wraps up another episode. Really stoked to be back next week. Um, Again, if you're going through this and you want to reach out or you don't even know how to get started with training, that is where David's going to be a valuable resource. Um, Like anything, just manage expectations for yourself. Like set the bar really high, but don't expect to, um, to whatever, just milestones and whatnot. Anyways, I'm going off on these random tangents. So if you are um, looking for a awesome step-by-step guide on how to launch a product when you don't know where to start, head over to crowdfundinguncut.com. You can pick up the field guide and it's loaded with a three months printable calendar and a full launch checklist. So that should keep you focused. Um, Apart from that, love you guys and thanks for listening. Are you launching a product on either Kickstarter or Shopify and you're feeling completely overwhelmed with the process? Hi there, my name is Kirsten, the CEO of Launch and Scale. To date, we've helped several online sellers sell millions of dollars online and scale their business from zero to seven figures by focusing on building an audience of fans that will actually convert into paying customers. If you're serious about building a seven-figure e-commerce brand with less time and less risk, you should check out our product launch pad. PLP is a proven accelerator that takes you step-by-step through the process of launching and scaling your product brand. Brands like the Monk Manual, Aberlite, Series Chill, Jamstack, and several others were all launched using our product launch pad. So if you'd like to be our next success story, go to launchandscale.co slash PLP to learn more. And for a limited time, we're offering a seven-day trial of the product launch pad for only $1. Again, go to launchandscale.co slash PLP to learn more.